If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you would please open those Bibles with me to the book of John, the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament. Uh, we, we are celebrating today, along with tens of thousands of other churches here in America, the day that we would call National Back to Church Sunday. It is a day in which we encourage people to get back in church who haven't been in a long time or even to come to church for the very first time. And today, I would like for us to see a portion of scripture where I believe we can find hope in our hopelessness, where we can find hope in our hopelessness. And today, uh, we are going to be reading in John chapter 8, a very familiar passage to us for those of you who have been in church any length of time. And before we get there, I just want to kind of open up with this, a question for us this morning. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt completely helpless? Have you ever been in that type of situation? Like there was just nothing that you could do about that situation. And maybe even to make matters worse, you were not only helpless, but you were exposed you were embarrassed, maybe even perhaps ashamed, and that feeling of helplessness quickly turned into hopelessness. Have you ever been there before? There was a, a time probably, I'm going to guess, and if I'm wrong, um, please, please correct me. Um, it was about 10 and a half years ago, uh, maybe almost 11 years ago, my family and I had packed up from here in Ionia. And we had moved to Florida to begin our journey in, in a different type of, of ministry. And uh, we began to uh, walk into what God was going to have for us in youth ministry uh, in Florida. And uh, in the process of the move, I had hurt my back. Um, I had hurt my back from lifting. Uh, and, and just it, it was one of those things where um, if you saw me and my wife um, will probably kill me for this, but she laughed at me a few times because I was slightly hunched over and I was walking extremely slow everywhere that I went. And I'd hurt my back and um, I, I had to get ready and, and go into the office and I had to get in the shower and I was struggling in the shower for just a moment. I'm going to be um, just going to be real open and honest with you guys this morning. Um, I won't give any graphic details, but while I was in the shower, I went to reach back to grab the, um, I had hair, just so you know. I went to grab the shampoo, um, and my, my back twinged just a little bit because I was still hurt, and I fell backwards out of the shower. Completely out of the shower, I ripped the shower curtain down, and I was laying on the bathroom floor completely and utterly immobilized. I could not move, I could not get up, my back was in so much pain, and I was completely exposed, completely embarrassed, and I had to call for help. Now, uh, those of you who know my wife sitting here on the front row um, is, not, um, is not a huge person, um, and I am compared to her. And so her helping me get up off of the bathroom floor was probably a scary scene in and of itself. But I remember the feeling for just a moment of complete hopelessness as I laid there thinking to myself, who's going to see what? Because I have to get off of the bathroom floor. I couldn't help but sit and think about this moment in time where typically I struggle asking people for help and I'm having people lift me from the ground because at the age of 23, I couldn't get off the floor because I had hurt my back. Now, for some of us in here, as, as maybe silly as that may seem, 
For some of us, having no hope is maybe a way that we live constantly in this life. It does not take much to look around our society and see the desperate state of our culture and begin to think to oneself, where is the hope today? You know, maybe even some in this building can completely identify with that feeling of hopelessness. Maybe that's you in the balcony. Maybe that's you online. That feeling that usually sets in deep when we perceive that there is no, uh, no help for us and therefore we begin to lose hope. And so the question posed to us today is where is hope? Where is hope? Now, where, church, where can we find hope in a world that seems to be suffering from hopelessness? Where? I'm hoping that in our text today we will meet a woman who by all intents and purposes must have had the overwhelming feeling of hopelessness. Here in the text, she is thrust into the spotlight, embarrassed beyond words, her sin exposed, open for all present to see. The only thing left for her was an agonizing death by stoning here in Scripture. And yet out of this hopeless situation, something miraculous happens here in the text. This helpless woman goes from having no hope to living a life full of hope. What happened to her can happen to each and every one of us here today and anyone who will watch or listen to this message from this day forward. In fact, it may have already happened for a lot of people here in this room. Yet the reality is, is that when we come to the one where all hope is found, our lives are never truly the same. So if you would, please follow along with me in John chapter 8. And I want us to discover where we can find help and hope in a hopeless world. Actually, you know what? Let's start in in chapter 7, verse 53. It says, And they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. Now I want us to just stop right here for a moment. There may be some of you sitting out in the crowd whose version of the Bible does not have this portion of Scripture, or it's in parentheses, or there's an asterisk next to it, or there's something listed on the side of your Bible about this portion of Scripture, and I just want to address the issue real fast. As a matter of the original text, this section of the Bible is much debate, there's much debate and controversy from scholars and theologians. Some of the earliest ancient Greek manuscripts have omitted this section of the Bible completely. Completely. But many of the later manuscripts bring it back and they put an asterisk next to it. Now I want to explain to you why. All of the evidence that we have, historical evidence, suggests that the scribes, the original uh, people who translated the Bible into English were ignorant of the exact position of this portion of the Bible, though they were anxious to retain it as a part of the Synoptic Gospels, meaning that they wanted it in the Bible, but they had no clear picture as to where it went in John's Gospel. That's why it's still here. That's why it was retained in now the the English versions of the Bible that we have. The earliest translators of the Bible knew that it belonged. They just didn't know exactly where it belonged. 
Now, some ancient Christians, such as St. Augustine, omitted this story from his teachings, not so much because of, of not having evidence, but because they thought that it made Jesus appear of sexual immorality, or at least not regarded as serious. But at the same time, as we begin to see today, the character here in this story will make it obvious that this is a genuine account and interaction with Jesus Christ. And most scholars still today note that not only is it historical, but it is also factual. And so with that being said, pick up with me in verse number three. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. And they said to him, Jesus, teacher... This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she says, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is our text for today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you in this place. And Lord, we ask of you now to illuminate these truths before us. We ask that we would not shut out or tune out the Holy Spirit today because of such a familiar portion, but that we would be ready to receive from you today where we can find hope in whatever hopeless or helpless circumstance and situation we may be facing. So Lord, encourage us today through your truth, and I ask and pray these things now in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. And amen. The first thing I want us to note this morning here in our text is that we have a grave situation. We have a grave situation. Imagine, if you will, the setting in which we find ourselves here this morning in the Bible. Here Jesus is teaching in the morning and in the temple no less. And when bursting into the room comes a group of dignified, pompous, and pious men, religious leaders, scribes, Pharisees, and these men completely disregarding the setting and utterly disrespectful to Christ make their entrance and what an entrance it was. They wanted to make this as public as possible. They wanted to embarrass both the woman and Jesus himself. Now church, all of the indications here are that her accusers had some special vindictiveness against this particular woman. This is shown also in the fact that they brought the woman along publicly. In Jewish law, there was no need to bring the woman publicly. She would have been kept in custody while the case would have been referred to Jesus. But the religious leaders brought this woman to Jesus in shame-filled and humiliating circumstances. She was held against her will. A prisoner under the custody of the quote-unquote religious police who caught her involved with a man who was not her husband. And the very act of adultery. Imagine with me for a moment a woman humiliated a woman exposed, a woman embarrassed, ashamed, and guilty. 
We can only imagine for a moment the utter hopelessness that she must have been experiencing at this moment in her life. Maybe you're in here this morning and you somehow identify with this woman. Maybe you're here today and perhaps there are things in your life that you are so ashamed of and you would never want anybody else to ever find out. And yet, for some, that very thing has happened. Even some here in this church. It could be something that's personal. Something that is private. It may have been a relational issue or or something from your past. And the problem now is that it's compiled on top of hopelessness is guilt. And the wondering if you can ever make things right again. Will Jesus ever accept me in this condition or in this way? Or maybe perhaps you're in here this morning and you're like, Pastor, I can't really relate to the woman here in the text. Well, then surely we can relate to the scribes and the Pharisees. Let's be honest, right? All all for honesty in church. Who among us has never taken an accusatory position against somebody? Who in this room right now, who online... Who in the balcony could truthfully and honestly lift their hand and say that they have never passed judgment or that they've never participated in some form of gossip or slander against another person? Who among us can say that they've never compared their little respectable sin to someone like this woman? Oh, I'd never do something like that. You'd never catch me say that. You'd never catch me watching that. You'd never catch me in that place. Who among us? Because I want to I submit to us this morning that we can all catch a glimpse of ourselves in the reflection of this woman's accusers. And I want to set the record straight this morning. I want to take a closer look at this grave situation and see if we can't shed some light on what truly was happening here in the text. To mention the obvious, there was a man who was involved in the very act of adultery, and yet the man is not brought before Jesus for judgment. To, to see this, it, it means in many ways, and I'll explain hopefully this to you, this was a prearranged setup, something where there were spies that went to witness the affair and carefully note the sordid details. According to Jewish law, the standard of evidence was very high for this crime. They had to actually witness the sexual act take place. It was not enough to see a pair of people leaving the same room together. It wasn't even enough, according to Jewish law, to see them lying in the same bed. They had to witness the physical movement of the couple and had no other explanation. Conditions in that day were so stringent in the law that they could have never been met except for only on special and rare occasions. So under those conditions, the obtaining of evidence in adultery would have almost been impossible in this situation unless it was a setup for the woman and for Jesus. They set a trap. They set a trap. If Jesus would have said, let her go, then he would have been breaking the law of Moses. If he said, stone her, execute her for the crime of adultery, then he would have been seen as harsh and cruel. 
he also would have been breaking the Roman law in that day because the Romans had taken away the right of execution from the Jews. And so, church, we must be very aware when reading this story this morning of how sin works in the lives of us. Sin, church, will always catch you up and will always leave you hopeless. It will always leave you hopeless. It always will. The devil, church, is the master at setting traps for the sinner and then leaving them exposed and embarrassed in this life. If we go back and we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul reminds the believer that we should not be ignorant of Satan's devices. To not be ignorant means that we see them and we get far away from them. In fact, Paul told that same church multiple times to flee immorality, flee sexual immorality, flee the things of the earth or the things of the flesh. Multiple times did he tell the church. And in that, he said, look out for the traps of Satan. I don't know about you in your own personal life, but I have come to find out that Satan desires to ruin our lives. He desires to keep us feeling helpless and hopeless. He wants us to think that one more time won't matter. He wants us to think. Why? Because he knows that once you've bought into the lie, you're hooked. You've bought into the lie, you're hooked. Do you guys remember back to our series in James just a few weeks ago? James chapter 1. We're told to be careful, to, to, to be careful when temptation comes, to be prepared for it. That our temptations are tailor-made just for us. So let me ask the question, where is the hope right now in this situation? Where is the hope? What would become of this woman? What would even become of Jesus in this situation? I imagine the woman sitting there thinking, I am dead no matter what Jesus says I'm dead you know in a world of hopelessness many are finding themselves in such a similar predicament today there's no way out there's a no-win situation in my life when I was 16 years old I went to Belding High School um and I had a very good friend. His name was Jeremiah Cabressa. Some of you in here may know him. Um, he came to our youth group. Uh, we went to school together. We had class together. And I remember walking into Sunday school class one Sunday morning for our Sunday school teacher to say, is there anyone in here who goes to Belding High School, which was about three quarters of our, our youth group at that time. And they pulled us in another room and they told us that uh, they had gotten word that Jeremiah had killed himself. And I remember sitting in church that morning thinking to myself, what could I have said or done different? What um, should I have done? And I remember being flooded overwhelmingly so with emotion because one of my good friends just killed himself over the weekend. He had written a note saying this very thing that there was no way out for me except for to take my own life. There's no way out. Church, the suicide rates in our country have increased 36% over the last two years. 
36%. There are two and a half million teenagers between the ages of 12 and 17 that have been diagnosed with anxiety, depression, or ones who struggle with suicidal thoughts. There are 50 million adults ages 18 and above who have been diagnosed with the same things, anxiety, depression, or those who struggle with suicidal thoughts. Most of these cases, somewhere in the ballpark of 70 to 75%, have all in some way either thought or said the phrase, there is no way out for me. This is a no-win situation in my life. And yet, the scary thing is, is that only 12% of 52.5 million known cases are being treated in some way through counseling or through medication that is needed. Only 12%. We have a, a country and a world of people who are lost and who are hurting. People who feel like there is no hope for them in their life and in the situations in which they live. There are so many people in our society that are lost and hurting. And I can't help but think for just a moment, what could we have done if we just shared the hope of Christ a little bit further? If we would have shared Jesus just a little bit more? If we would have lived a little bit differently But then I come to portions of scripture like this and I'm so glad for what we see here in the text. Christian, you and I have a hope. You and I have hope in this life. And I guarantee you, there is someone in your circle of influence that is hopeless. I guarantee there's someone in your circle of influence that feels helpless. Look back with me at verse number six because Christ knew exactly what to do in this specific situation. This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Church, the second thing I want you to see here in in our text is there was a godly response. We have a grave situation and a godly response. A godly response. The religious leaders, wretched men as they were, used this woman as a weapon against Jesus. They presented her as a sinner, but ignored their own sin in the matter. They cared nothing of true righteousness. They were not looking at this woman as a person at all. They were looking at her as an instrument whereby they could formulate a charge against Jesus. And Christ gave a challenging response to them. The challenge here that was issued by Jesus caused these men to have to search their own hearts. It was a careful and deliberate response by Jesus. Instead of making some immediate verbal response, Jesus stooped down to the ground. He wrote on the ground with his finger, presumably in the dirt that was on the ground before him. I love the side of Jesus that we see here in the text. Jesus didn't react with anger or immediate outrage. He didn't scream at the woman who had been caught. He didn't even scream at those who brought the woman, the accusers. He didn't yell. He paused and he stooped down to the ground. He crouched to the ground. And in a very low posture, he identified with the humiliation of this woman. 
Jesus did what he could to care for her and to ease the embarrassment of this woman by the very way that he responded. Do you know, I I sat in a a debate class for theology and um, one of my classmates, a very dear friend of mine uh, now, um, but used to say that this this story illustrated a great problem in the Bible. Um, He said, how can God show love and grace to the sinner without being unjust, without breaking his own law? And I remember having this debate with him in this class, and I said, well, he did that by first identifying with the sinner in their lowly condition. That's how. That's how he didn't break the law. He identified with them. What Jesus wrote or what Jesus wrote in the sand has been an endless source of speculation for pastors and teachers and commentators. Some say that Jesus simply stalled for time. Some people think that Jesus wrote a passage of the law that condemned adultery, where others said that Jesus wrote out Exodus 23.1 that says, Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Other people think that Jesus wrote the names of the scribes and Pharisees, where others said he wrote the sins of the scribes and Pharisees. Some think that Jesus followed the judicial practice and wrote out his sentence before he even spoke it. In my opinion, I believe Jesus wrote a love letter to that lady that said, I'm here to to rescue you. I'm here to save you. I'm going to show you why in just a moment in the text that I believe that what was written in the sand was more to uplift and encourage that woman in the midst of her hurt and pain and helplessness and hopelessness. But before we get there, Jesus stooped down and wrote and he acted as if he did not hear the accusation at all. And I believe Paul made the perfect reference in 2 Corinthians 10 of what we see here on display in Christ's character when he talks about God's meekness and gentleness towards the sinner. Think with me, if you will, how quickly and easily Jesus could have exposed the accuser's sin. How quickly and easily he could have done that. Think about the time that elapsed from the moment that they brought her before Jesus until the the Pharisees and scribes were gone. It must have seemed like an eternity for this woman. Now I want you to think with me for a moment and realize that Jesus is never in a hurry to condemn. It's not going to come on the screen, but if you're a note taker, I want you to write it down. Jesus is never in a hurry to condemn. Never. What Jesus was simply doing was getting these men to see the hidden sin of their own heart. The hypocrisy in which they were living. I want you to look at the verse on the screen, Romans 2. It says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same thing. The very law that they were using to convict this woman was the same law that was convicting their own conscience. And that's what the law does. That's what God intended for it to do. And if you have missed Wednesday night Bible study, I would recommend you going back and listening. They're all online on the church website. Every single chapter of the book of Romans that we have covered is all there. And I suggest and highly recommend you go back and listen because of all the topics that we have covered. But we are reminded in Romans chapter 3, that the law was given to reveal sin inside the man. He says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, 
There shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Romans 3.20. Church, what we're seeing here in the text is what I would call the hard side of hope. The hard side of hope. The convicting power of the word of God. It exposes the reality of who we are internally and it forces us to deal with the issues of the heart. It's the hard side of hope, but after the hard side of hope, it brings about the healing side of hope. The healing side. We move from conviction to cleansing. And so church, I want you to write something down. Once you have been convicted, you have a choice to be cleansed, and that cleansing is what brings about conversion in your life. You have a choice when the conviction comes. Had these guys been and not been in such a hurry to run and to hide, they too could have experienced the cleansing that this woman experiences here in the text. And this is what they did. They missed Jesus. They missed his life-giving words. And so church, this is where I'm going to show us now, hopefully in the text, where I believe that Jesus wrote down and wrote a love letter to this woman. Where I believe that he did. The third thing I want us to see is that Jesus, Jesus brings life-giving words. At this point in the story, we understand that from the text, it was just Jesus and the woman. The others have left. Look with me back at verse number 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. You know, as Jesus rises to his feet and comes face to face with this girl, several life-altering things transpire in just a brief moment of time here. There are no more accusations against this woman. Where are the woman's accusers? They've left They're gone, they're dealing with their own guilt, and instead of letting the conviction that hit their conscience change them, they withdrew and only grew more calloused. Church, if you walk away with nothing else this morning, please, please, please know this. We have a choice today. Will we either withdraw from Christ and become more callous like the Pharisee, or will we come to Christ and find hope? Well, we come to Christ and find hope. The woman here in the text shows us the exact right response. Look with me at verse number 11. Actually, look look with me at number 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Listen to her response. She says, No one, Lord. No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. First of all, it is the only thing that this woman says in this entire section of the Bible. No one, Lord. Three little words. It shows her her humility and her acceptance as Christ as her Savior. She called him Lord where the Pharisees and scribes called him teacher or in some versions master. But she said, Lord, my Savior, the one who rescued me, the one over me. And those three little words were an indication to us as we read this text that she had a new character, that she was saved. She was a part of God's family. And in essence, she no longer made excuse, nor did she try to explain what happened. She knew who she was, and she'd finally found all that she was looking for in Christ. Which leads us to another choice here this morning, church. 
Are we ready to stop making excuses and explanations for why we are the way that we are? Or why we do the things that we do? Are we ready to recognize that we need a Savior and that we need to turn to Him? Are we ready? Are we ready to come to Jesus and find hope in this place? The last part of verse number 11 is where we find the life-giving words of Jesus. I don't condemn you anymore at all. I don't. They're gone. I don't condemn you, so go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Imagine standing before Jesus and hearing the words, I don't condemn you, child. I don't condemn you. I'm here to lift you up. I'm here to make you whole again. And I love, love what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus, who don't walk according to the flesh, but have been given new life have been given new life, church. The woman was brought to Christ in the darkness of her past and in the despair of her present situation. But Jesus showed her the possibility of a new future and a transformed life. This This woman came to Jesus under the sentence of death by stoning. And Jesus saved her. It is in Jesus that we find hope, church. And so I wonder who today, I wonder who today finds themselves in a helpless or a hopeless situation. I wonder who today needs to set aside the, the excuses. I wonder who, who today needs to find hope in Christ. I wonder who today is, is ready to recommit their life to Christ. I wonder who among us today is ready to turn from sin and self and turn towards Christ. If you would, please bow your heads and close your eyes in an attitude of of prayer. I'm asking that nobody uh, would be looking around and please be considerate of the people around you. We can't look at a portion of Scripture and on a day like today and, and speak of hope and not give someone an opportunity to experience the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. And so I have a question for, for you today. Christian or non-Christian in this room, how many of you could raise your hand and say, Pastor, I need prayer because I'm walking through something that feels hopeless or helpless in my life. Nobody's looking. It's just me. It's just me. There's no need to be embarrassed. Balcony, main floor, young, old alike. Who's walking through something saying, Pastor, that's me. I, I feel like I have a situation. That's, look, there's, there's hands all over this room. Thank you guys. Thank you guys for raising those hands. In just a moment, I'm actually going to ask, I just feel like the Lord is leading us to do this. I'm going to ask in just a moment for a few people from our prayer team to come forward so that we can pray with you. You don't have to give us all the details of what's going on, but we want to we be a church that saturates our body in the word of God by, by prayerfulness. And so maybe you're in here though. Maybe you're in here and you're saying, I don't, I don't know Christ. I have no hope and I'm, I'm helpless because I don't know Christ. Maybe that's you among us. And you're saying, I want hope. 
I want to find hope in Jesus Christ. If that's you, if you've never called on the name of the Lord, uh, would you just look at me? No one's going to call you to the front. I'm not going to make fun of you. I'm not going to ask your name. I just, I want to be able to pray with you and for you. Thank you. Thank you. If that's you this morning, you can call on the Lord right where you are sitting. You can call on his name to rescue and save you, to, to bring hope into your life. You don't have to say any special words. There's no specific prayer that you have to read off of a card. It's you crying out to God and recognizing that you're a sinner in need of a Savior and that you believe on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what it takes. It says to repent and believe. Repent and believe and those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so you have an opportunity in this place right now to call out to him. I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask you at this time, if you raised your hand and you're willing to be prayed with, I'm going to ask if you would just come out of your seat and just come right up here along, along the front. If you want to pray alone, um, please just kneel or, or, or stand off, off to my, my right side over here. You just get out of your seat. If you're, if you're in need of prayer for one of your situations, we've got people who want to pray with you. There's nothing wrong with, with being prayed alongside of. There's nothing wrong. It's, it's okay to get out of your seat and come forward for prayer. This should, should be a place that we feel most comfortable coming forward for prayer. And if I could get a few of our prayer team members to come. Maybe you're in here and you didn't know the Lord and you cried out to him in this place. You cried out to him saying, please rescue me, God. I, I believe in you. If that's you, would you just look at me from wherever you're sitting, balcony? Will you just look at me if that was you? Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to ask you, if you would at this time, to take a step, a huge step that can be uncomfortable. If that's you that has prayed, would, would you get out of your seat and would you come down here and meet us right down here? We want to we be able to rejoice with you. We want to pray with you. We want to talk to you about the greatest decision that you just made in your life. Would you be willing to come and just meet me? I'll shut my microphone off and I'll meet you right down here. I don't want to embarrass you. For those of you who are here and in, in need of prayer, uh, we can hang for a few minutes. We're not, we're not in a rush. I don't want to rush the Holy Spirit in this place. Heavenly Father, we come to you in this place, Lord, and we, we rejoice because of the hope that you give. And so, God, I'm asking for, for you to use your words, Lord, to um, help us to be ready always to give an answer of the hope that is inside of us. Lord, we, we have that hope, and, and we know from your word it is an anchor for this soul of ours. But Lord, we, we know that at times we can become short-sighted. And so God, please give us strength uh, to, to defend and protect our minds with your word. Lord, that when things do come in, that we would, we would take those thoughts captive. Uh, Lord, that we, we would cast aside every high and lofty thought in our lives. 
That when, when we come to moments in, in our circumstances where we feel helpless and hopeless, Lord, that we would be reminded of your good gift. That we would be turning our lives uh, back to you, God. And if there are those among us, Lord, who need encouragement and spurring on here in this church, that we as a body uh, would exhort one another, Lord, as your word calls us to do. And as long as it's called today. And so, God, I, I pray for a continued growth in our church body in our spiritual depth, God, and our love for you. Lord, use, use today as we begin to walk from here into a time of fellowship uh, over lunch. Um, and Lord, I pray that you would give us courage to take steps of faith, even when it seems scary. That we would step out uh, like Peter did from the boat, and that we would keep our eyes on you. And I ask and pray these things now in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen, and amen, and amen.